Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning and welcome to the Michael Reed Show on the shortest day of the year and the last programme before the Christmas. We're going to begin this morning with a look back at all the events that made headlines over the year of 2018 with our political correspondent Sean Defoe. And I began when I spoke to Sean before we came on air by saying to him that in, if this was 1979 and we were to review the year, we would have focused on Pope John Paul II's visit to the Phoenix Park. This year, of course, the Pope visited Ireland, but it didn't have anywhere near the same impact. Yeah, I wonder how many plays on reading in the years it's going to get because we've seen that moment with John Paul too and, you know, people of Ireland, I love you, has become such an iconic saying down throughout Irish history and, to be, you know, people just know it. It's synonymous with, with Catholic Ireland of the 70s and 80s but really very, very different this year. There was a huge amount of tension on the Pope's visit when he was here. I mean, it dominated all of August, really, the build-up to it, the would he apologise for the, the child sex abuse and he, without kind of quite saying I'm sorry, he said I'm sorry, he didn't quite go that far. Uh, but the turnout was ended up being the big story. I think the figure was certainly less than 150,000 in the end when they were expecting half a million. And there's lots of things that fed into that. That's been argued before. You know, was it the weather? Was it a lack of interest? Was it the mountains of warnings that people got beforehand that it's going to be really hard to get to this thing? It's going to be hard to get out. And the weather's going to be bad. There's probably lots of factors that kept people away. But certainly, and it shows what an absolutely mental year it's been that it barely ticked the needle overall in the year in review uh, as something of particular interest. Just whereas before, I mean, a Pope coming to Ireland would have been the be-all and end-all, you know? He did seem to become more apologetic as, as the visit went on and perhaps he was getting more enlightenment on what had gone on in the past and what's still an ongoing issue for so many people. But incredibly, you know, if, when you look at how much Ireland has changed since that 1979 visit, in May we voted to allow abortion. Yeah, and it's only in the last couple of weeks that it's actually passed. It's you know, six months on and it's now gotten through the Oireachtas and it'll be law from January 1st. Abortions will be legal in Ireland and it is something, I think it's kind of the pinnacle of the changes that we've had in this country over the last 30 years from that Pope's visit and from the Ireland there and from 1983 when the Eighth Amendment was put into the Constitution overwhelmingly. It was a complete reversal at the time. Two-thirds were in favour of blocking abortions and, and not having them in Ireland and this time it was the complete opposite. Two-thirds in favour of legalising them and allowing them to happen. An utter sea change in Irish opinion 
and it was just such a momentous referendum. It dominated the first half of the year entirely in terms of news coverage from, from both sides. There were really deep rows. There were discussions in families because it's one of those issues that isn't quite as black and white as some of the others we deal with. You know, it, it tore through different families who maybe say they might have voted for the Gael or for the Fall all their life and yet they were completely divided on this issue and generally it was younger people more in favour, older people less in favour but even that, those were skewed and there was you know a majority of, of people I think up to the age of 65 voted in, in favour of getting rid of it so a complete sea change in Irish opinion that has kind of been coming for a long time, like I'm not necessarily convinced that referendum would have passed even four or five years ago, even as recently as that, I think the marriage referendum set a lot of the path for it and set people on this way to it becoming the next big issue. But what really stood out for me, I think, is the personal stories that people told. Because you can, you know, things get debated here in Leinster House all the time that don't get attention that, you know, politicians are just discussing. But it didn't really become about the politicians. It became about the women who've had to travel. It became about those who have unfortunately had fatal fetal abnormalities uh, happen to their children. It, it became about those real personal stories. And I think a lot of people, when they heard those and heard people talking about it, felt it was really, really difficult to vote no or to vote against this. And while they probably don't agree with how far some of the legislation has gone or with allowing it, you know, carte blanche up to 12 weeks, they agreed that a change needed to happen. And, and it did in May and now it's been legislated for and it's going to be legal from January. And Donegal was consistent. Donegal was the only constituency to vote no. And even then it was close. I mean, Donegal could have swung the other way, but it shows you the vast majority across the country that really, really wanted this. Most, almost every constituency voting in favour. And even the fact that afterwards, yeah, there's been a little bit of, you know, some of the, you see that small group of TDs who've spoken out against it, see a small number of protests. But there hasn't been any uproar. There hasn't been any backlash to the vote. People have accepted it and say, yeah, you know what, this is the, this is what Irish people want. This is the way we're going to change it. And, and now it's done. And of course, one of the people who has been a, a significant part of that fallout is Padre Tobin, who's no longer a member of the Sinn Féin party. No, now talking about starting his own party, uh, whatever that will come. Uh, I think he said in the new year he's going to name it some catchy, short Irish name that rolls off the tongue so far, he said. But yeah, he was one of two Sinn Féin TDs that left the party over abortion. We don't forget that Carol Nolan was suspended when she voted against uh, some part of the passage. I think it was the uh, passage of the bill to hold the referendum. Um, and she was expelled from the party for a while and then decided to leave. And then the same thing happened with Pallard Tabin, where he went against the, the party line, was suspended and has then decided to leave as well, so really breaking with Sinn Féin, and now moving on to his own term, and he was, the two of them were, were instrumental in that group of eight, alongside the likes of Matthew McGrath, the Healy Rays, Michael Collins, in trying to oppose this legislation going through. So it's interesting time for Padre Tabini, he's now going to run as, a, as an independent TD, and it will be interesting to see whether, or even how hard Sinn Féin go against him in terms of another candidate. We now know that election is probably going to be in early 2020, so he's got to, to stake out that front and also um, you know, to try and hold on to that vote whether they were personal or whether they were party so he does probably have quite a, a personal backing, haven't been there for such a long time but it, it's an interesting dynamic for him and it's something probably Peter Fitzpatrick faces now as well in, in Loud that leaving yeah. Fine Gael during the year and the same thing, is it going to be that there was a Fine Gael vote behind him that will put in another candidate and won't support him or is it will he have enough for personal vote to stay in so interesting for the two of them. Interesting year as well for Sinn Féin because after 34 years another man with a local connection Jerry Adams uh, replaced the Sinn Féin leader by Mary Lou MacDonald 
Yeah, and uh, probably not a good year for Sinn Féin overall, you would have to say. They did have a bit of a bounce when Mary Lou Macdonald took over. Initially, they got a few numbers in the polls. There was good things being said. She was, there was a positive buzz around the party. But that kind of faded off. All those poll numbers have come down, and they are weird with Sinn Féin, the poll numbers. It's very hard to know where they actually stand, because the two you would most rely on, the Behaviour Attitudes poll and the Red Sea poll, typically the two most consistent in political polling. One has them consistently in the early 20s and the other has them consistently in the early to mid-teens. I'd say it's probably somewhere in the middle, probably somewhere in 16 or 17% support, but very hard to know where they actually are. But that gloss has come off. The presidential campaign was a disaster for them through Lee and Lee Reed. She got an respectable, I suppose, vote in the end, given how much Michael D dominated, but really didn't tick any needles that they were hoping for. And they also had those two TDs leave the party. So it's an interesting situation now that Mary Lou McDonald finds herself in because Jerry Adams was there for so long. He was such a dominant figure of republicanism and of Sinn Féin and had everything set out his own way. And I, I was talking to her recently and just asking, you know, how do you go about changing that? Because even in any organisation, we could look at Manchester United and, and the, the trouble that they've had. Alex Ferguson was there for so long and he was so successful. And everyone who's come in so far has, uh, you know, not even dipped the needle entirely. It's, it's been awful for them. In some ways, Mary Lou McDonald faces a, a similar conundrum. How do you take that mantle and how do you change the party so that everyone now listens to you and also making a bit of your own and building on that work that was done before to now bring Sinn Féin to a position where maybe they could be a, a government party. She said that that's going to come in time. She accepts that it's going to take a long time for her to to change things from being Jerry Adams's party to Mary Lou's party. So 2019 is going to be a big test of her. I imagine she's probably not going to be given the same length of time and patience that Jerry was at the helm of the party. You mentioned the presidential election. Michael D returned with 822,566 votes. Peter Casey, 23.3%, 342,727 votes, and a lot of debate. A lot of debate, yeah. Not all of it very sensible. Um, the presidential election was very weird because for weeks it was just boring. It was not interesting. Michael D was miles ahead in the polls. There was no one really ticking, making any sort of difference. Sean Gallagher's impact was, was negligible, but really wasn't there. But Peter Casey, he, he chimed into something. I, I don't know whether it's an anger vote, whether it's a protest vote, whether it's just a bit of racism. But he did when he made his comments about travellers that they shouldn't have ethnic status. You know, he chimed into to something. People, a lot of people have a lot of bad experiences with members of the travelling community. And he didn't do the usual political, I've said something wrong and now I'll retract it and I'll be very apologetic. He completely doubled down and he kept on going, kept on pushing and ended up by being the only one of them who got their deposit back and got a bit of money for it in the end. And, you know, now has gotten a bit of attention. What he'll do next, I don't know, in terms of he's also talking about maybe forming another party. We could see him and Patrick Bean on a ticket together, maybe, at some point. But, you know, it's an interesting microcosm. We all thought Michael D would walk the election. He did walk the election. But it threw up just a few questions about, you know, society in general, Everything isn't as rosy as some of the other parties might think it is. There is a bit of an anger, a bit of a protest vote out there, and that swung to Peter Casey. That may well be a wake-up call. Um, Brexit, it's more an alarm call at this stage, is it? It's uh, a shambles, I think, is the only word you can use to describe it. I mean, Brexit is just... No one knows what's going to happen, and it's the really scary thing, because we have never really known what Brexit is going to look like, because no country's ever done it, so we just don't know what exactly that will entail, particularly when it's one of our largest or our largest trading partner. And I think there was a general sense that as we get closer to the date on March 29th, when they're actually going to leave, we'd have a bit of an idea. We'd know, okay, 
probably this is what it's going to look like. Businesses could maybe prepare in a certain way. But if anything, it's getting more murky because there's no one in the UK has a clear consensus on what they want. There's a general consensus, yes, they're going to leave. But even among that... They don't know how they want to leave, what kind of a deal they want. Do they want to be gone altogether? Should there be a, a hard Brexit, a soft Brexit? Should there be, you know, NTO rules? Should we go on a, a Norway-style system? And it's no clear with no real consensus. And all this political movering that's going on in, in Westminster, I don't think is actually going to achieve anything because you're not going to get the backing for the withdrawal deal that's, not on, the ta- uh, that's on the table. You're probably not going to get the backing for any other deal at the moment either. So I really do think a no-deal Brexit is the most likely outcome at the moment, and that is is terrible for us. I mean, the Taoiseach has tried to play down the impact that that would have and said that even next year, under all forecasts at the moment, even next year, with there no deal Brexit, the Irish economy will still grow. And, and that's true, according to the forecast, but it also says about €4 billion Euro would be wiped off the Irish economy, would be wiped off of all of the prospects. And I don't think we're prepared for that. I don't think the budget was really proofed enough against that. So it's it's very worrying why we're laughing in some sense about the, the mess that the politicians in the UK are in. The next few months is when it's going to start hitting real people and when it's actually going to start affecting businesses which will be knocked on to customers then and hitting everyone's pocket. And, you know, that's a bit scary as we go into 2019. Is it part of the reason why this confidence and supply extension was so important to Fianna Gael and to Fianna Fáil? Well, according to Fianna Fáil, it's the only reason, really, because they've come away with nothing out of it. They have got into a negotiation that wasn't really a negotiation, because in a negotiation you get something, and they haven't. They, You know, there's two ways to think of it, really. You could go down the Trust in Hall Martin route, say, and say, yeah, do you know what, that's a fairly responsible thing to do. You're not going to get any plaudits for this, for extending confidence and supply, but you've done it because if we had no government during Brexit and during these negotiations, we'd be in a pretty bad spot. So fair play on that level. But if you wanted to be cynical, you could look at it and say that they were in talks for six to eight weeks and they achieved absolutely nothing. The Fine Gael completely stonewalled them, didn't drop them anything, any new little trinkets or anything, and they accepted that. Remember, Michal Martin is afraid of an election because he knows that if he goes into another election and he loses it or doesn't come away as Taoiseach, he's pretty much done. It's very, very difficult for someone to lose three elections and still hang on to their leadership. So I think it's a really tough position for Fianna Fáil. They, at the moment, have no real way to stand out from Fine Gael. They can't criticise them too hardly because they're you know, the ones propping them up, and yet they can't get real change done, and any good that does happen, the government gets the credit for rather than Fianna Fáil. They look at the moment like Fine Gael light, and how he, between now and 2020, when the election will be, actually steps out of that shadow and managed to create, I don't know what kind of narrative around Fianna Fáil, but something different to say, look, you need to vote for us. We are different from Fine Gael, and we can provide you with a better government, because at the moment, people are kind. the two are kind of merging in many people's minds, I think. You don't expect an election next year? I don't know at the moment, but, you know, those are foolish last words. So God knows what could happen. I think 2018 showed us that anything could happen in politics, and maybe it will. There could be a temptation there from Leo Varadkar if Brexit gets wrapped up in the first half of the year to just cut and run. He's really wants his own mandate. Remember, he was never elected as Taoiseach by the people. He was elected by his own party uh, as the Taoiseach. So he does kind of want that bit of a mandate and the support for him and sees the poll numbers that he's consistently ahead of me, Hall Martin. But unless Fine Fáil or Fine Gael were ticking up near the high 30s, early 40s, I don't think there's any chance of that because really the arithmetic wouldn't change enough to put one person in power or one party in power. So I don't think we'll see it. I think everyone will be happy enough to ride through 2019, get all the posters printed and the leaflets done. And we'll see a lot of electioneering next year ahead of the early 2020 election, a lot of it. But I don't think we'll actually go to the polls on a general election anyway. 
Finally, Sean, we would have to say that 2018 was the year we said goodbye to Emma Vic Mahuna, who died so tragically in October. That's mm, one of the most tragic stories I think of this year has been the cervical check scandal. I mean, Emma Vic Mahuna is one of the most high-profile women to die in this, but other women have died since uh, because of uh, the cervical cancer and because of the the screening that didn't show it up or because of getting treatment later on. Uh, it's one just I think touches every family because everyone knows someone and particularly when you're thinking about it this time of year everyone knows someone who is suffering or has suffered or has died from cancer unfortunately it's one of those things that really hits and this is one scandal that really really touched to people it, it absolutely dominated political headlines and the political agenda as the government tried to deal with it and I don't think we fully got all the answers that we need yet either it, it is a very complicated story but even for example at the moment the waiting times for people getting smear tests to get their smear test results are massive because of that guarantee the government gave that people could have their tests redone and I think that was probably the right thing to do when many women were scared about it but there's now a huge long waiting list and even more I know some women who are, are scared to even go and get the smear test done because they don't think they'll get it back in time before the slides actually expire so one of definitely the more tragic stories and I think Vicky Phelan has to be you know if you were picking a person of the year I think we'd have to pick her because without her without her bravery and actually saying you know I'm not signing a no disclosure agreement in court I'm not going to take the settlement you've been on offer which for a lot of us I imagine we're very tempted to do if that was put in front of us she said no she said I'm going to bring this to light and made so many other women who wouldn't have known otherwise and wouldn't have been able to get help otherwise aware of the situation that was going on. So she definitely deserves, I think, to be the person of the year for 2018, uh, despite such the tragic circumstances that that came to light in. Sean Defoe there, our political correspondent, looking back at the big political stories of 2018 a little later in the programme. Our head of news, Michael Carolyn, will look back at the local stories that made headlines in 2018. We'll be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're very welcome back to the Michael Reed Show, our last programme before Christmas. As always, 086 658 is our text line. And joining me in studio now is Paul Bell, who is the SIP2 Health Organiser, and we're going to talk about the current situation with Amelin's personnel. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Carl. And a happy Christmas to you. Same to you. Many happy response. Amelin's drivers in the HSC, they're about to have a review of their, okay. their day-to-day roles mm-hmm. and... Essentially, they're looking to be regarded as professionals, aren't they? Absolutely, and there's the first thing that we have to correct. Uh, ambulance professionals do not reserve, so, reserve, uh, refer to themselves as ambulance drivers because mm. that's something that went 20-odd years ago where you would have had an ambulance driver... Who literally and drove the ambulance drove the, and that was drove it. Drove the vehicle and accompanied by a professional nurse. And uh, so we went away from all that and what was developed was the emergency medical technician which was the prerequisite to the paramedic, which is the prerequisite to the advanced paramedic. So what does all that mean to the public? Uh, every time there's a, an upgrade in skill set, it gives a member of the public who finds themselves in difficulty a better chance mm. once the, uh, the ambulance professional reaches them. Uh, so Because they're more qualified they're more now qualified. than ever. Absolutely. Uh, paramedics and advanced paramedics and emergency medical technicians can actually now give life-saving mm. medication on the scene, whether it's an accident on the, on the side of the road, whether it's in the home, uh, whether it's in the workplace, 
immediately they reach, they commence the treatment. In fact, the treatment commences as soon as the phone call is made uh, to the emergency dispatch centre in Tala or in, uh, in Ballyshannon in County Donegal. So that's the kind of advance that has happened fairly quickly. Uh, but unfortunately, and these personnel are all over the northeast. Oh, absolutely! I mean, right here in 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 County Loud, County Mead, County Monaghan, uh, big uh, big uh, area of coverage. A lot of uh, ambulance paramedics, and then of course you're not that far away from North County Dublin mm. in Balbriggan. It's only 15 minutes drive from here. So the big issue here has been is that while some good advances have been made, uh, like any service in the health service, uh, along came the recession. Uh, a lot of resources were cut from the ambulance service investment in fleet and investment in people. Uh, in 2016, um, having had a, a significant battle with the Department of Health, following a number of incidents where the public were losing confidence in the ambulance service, thinking that it wasn't fit for purpose, uh, we demanded what was called a capacity review. Uh, a lot of very serious incidents happened. and What we, sort of incidents? Well, people who lost their lives, people who believed that the ambulance service could not respond to their community. Uh, what we were very concerned about was was that it was being levelled at public servants who are basically ambulance professionals. Uh, they were doing their very best with what they had uh, and there was no understanding actually of what resources that they actually did have. So we demanded that there would be a capacity review and what the review found uh, following a, a public hearing uh, of the health committee, uh, uh, the Oireachtas Health Committee, sorry, was that the ambulance service did not have enough vehicles, did not have enough people. Uh, it was there was non investment in new vehicles, under resourced, under resourced, big problems, right? So, and this was a throwback to the recession, absolutely. So, but what was quite surprising, Cahill, was it was the first time ever that the Irish ambulance service was subject to a capacity review. In the history of the state. In the history of the state. And we found that quite shocking. Uh, and it took a trade union, SIP2, to, to actually say, we need that to happen. Because we want the public to be confident in the service and the people who provide it. So what we got that straight, straightened out in 2016. Uh, a good, uh, huge investment uh, in vehicles. In a, a commitment to recruit 110 paramedics per year, which has been ongoing. We're nearly at the end of that now, because uh, we were short almost 600 persons. And that has been honoured. Honoured, yes, in full. So we now, of course, we'd always like more. Uh, and what we do need is is for the paramedic and the advanced paramedic and those people providing frontline services to be allowed into a process where they can have the actual duty job, task, skill set assessed independently to see where they actually fit in properly to the whole health service family. So the independent, the joint independent review uh, will commence in January, which will start to walk through this. And there's a United Kingdom company coming in to assist uh, our own local so people So this is here. wholly independent? Uh, wholly independent, because it has to be reported back to government what exactly it is. Also, government will have to decide, and the Department of Health, what kind of ambulance service do they want hmm. for the public? Remember, uh, Cahill, more and more healthcare is going into the community. That is more ambulance reliant. And also, the kind of ambulance service we're going to offer into the future may not just be about sending a vehicle somewhere. It may be done by telephone. Uh, ambulance professionals may also have the uh, discretion to discharge patients in the community, in other words, not bring them to hospital, uh, which is a practice that already is ongoing in Scotland. So that's well developed. But we're quite excited about this. So if they treat you on the spot and there's no need for you to go to A&E yeah. or there's no need for you to Absolutely. go to hospital, and they can say, we're happy now, you can go home. Absolutely. And there's another system called uh, Hear and Treat, 
which is basically done by telephone. But mm. somebody may not need an ambulance. They may need some other medical care. They may need the care of, of a nurse or they may need the care of their GP, but they do not require an emergency ambulance. And presumably online can, can help with that They can as help well. with that, yes. So what, 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 what do you expect from this review? Well, what we expect, and uh, what fingers crossed, is that it will identify that the skill set and the job description have actually basically gone miles and miles apart. Mm. In other words, the job for the ambulance profession has evolved beyond whatever was ex- expected. Uh, we can has, say has that pay evolved with that. It has not. Okay. And unfortunately, that's a problem that we would have, uh, and we'd like to correct that. But in a structured way, with inside the public service stability agreement, uh, the terms are allowed there, and also the. The Health Service Executive and the National Ambulance Service have made no secret that maybe uh, the Ambulance Service, as we know today, has to be reorganised. And that uh, process of the independent review, the skilling of uh, ambulance professionals, the recognition of ambulance professionals will obviously feed into that. We've heard, and again it was on the news headlines this morning, that the HSE is going to get more money for in 2019 than ever before. But there's still a lot of unhappiness amongst workers within the HSE. Well, unfortunately, uh, Cahill, uh, the health service is a demand-driven service. Uh, we know all this. We know the demographics of our society. We know the types of challenges that uh, you know various cohorts of the population face. If it's care of the elderly, if it's intellectual disability, if it's mental health, or acute services, or maternity services. So we see that while there is an increase in monies being provided, we do not see that that's basically the way forward to try and create health service that we require. What we believe is, is that there should be more clear, direct investment in Slauncher Care, which is a programme adopted by all parties of the Oireachtas and Independents, uh, where basically we understand that over a 10-year period, 15-year period, these are the steps we're going to take to make sure that Ireland has a national health service uh, and a national health service that measures up to that's, what goes that's on. Fit, that's fit, for, that's fit purpose. for purpose. And in terms of SIP2, I mean, your, your reaction to the, the vote taken by the nurses this week, that ni- 94% of them have voted to take strike action in the new year. Well, SIP2 has been pursuing uh, all claims uh, for nurses through the structures under the Public Service Agreement. The Public Service Pay Commission has made recommendations about allowances. Uh, our members are entitled to that and we, we welcome that and we're quite happy to work with that. We've also made some significant progress for the new entrant pay grades, which is our nurses who start in 2011 mm. on a different pay grade and they're going to be addressed o- over the year. Uh, but we want to work within the public service agreement. Uh, there has been significant increases in pay, some 7.5%, on top of what the public service pay commission has recommended. There is an, an understanding that some unions will pursue these matters in different ways. Uh, we also understand that the Public Service Pay Commission has directed that some of the issues being claimed by nursing unions could be addressed through a separate mechanism on the, a future public service agreement. Uh, and that's something that we would be very interested as, as representing nurses uh, in getting involved Which in. sector nurses do you represent? Mainly in, in psychiatric services. And uh, are, were uh, they yeah. part of the vote the other day? No, we, no. We, none, of, none of the SIP2 members have been voting in, in, the, in this uh, dispute. But again, we understand that other colleagues are deciding to mm. pursue their claims in a different way. We intend to stick to the public service agreement because at the end of the day, there's a certain amount of money available to be put into public service pay. And, of course, we have increased in public service pay coming from January and then in September next, which are all fairly significant. 
Paul Bell, thank you so much for your time this morning. That's Paul Bell, SIP2 Help Organiser. And can we wish you a happy Christmas? Thank you. Thank you. And we'll be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. This is the Michael Reed Show, and you're very welcome back to the programme. Our head of news, Michael Carolyn, now takes a look back at the local stories that made the headlines in 2018. Just three days into the new year and as people return to work on a chilly Wednesday morning, a series of knife attacks in Dundalk became the lead news story across the country. The attacks on the Avenue Road, Inner Relief Road and in Seatown initially sparked fears of a terrorist attack and left one man dead and two others seriously injured. 24-year-old Yusuke Sasaki, originally from Japan, died after he was attacked on his way home from a night shift at National Pen in the town. 18-year-old Mohamed Morai subsequently appeared in court, charged with his murder. Five days later, hundreds of people would gather at Market Square for a candlelit vigil in Yosuke's memory. A statement from his family was read out by local councillor John McGahan. We would like to express our sincere gratitude for the kindness that the people of Ireland have shown us. When he was alive, our son spoke about the warmth of the people of this town and his love for Dundalk. He came to Ireland initially as a language student and he only intended a short stay. However, he was touched by the kindness of the Irish people and he decided to work here. As a family, we are truly saddened by what has happened, but we hope that this incident will not give Japanese people a bad impression of Ireland. We would like to give our heartfelt thanks to the ambulance personnel, the Garda, National Pen Limited, Mr. Oliver Morgan, who set up the GoFundMe page, the staff of the Embassy of Japan, and the members of Louth County Council who have organised tonight's candlelight vigil. Finally we, finally, we hope that a tragic event like this one will never happen in this country again. The Sasaki family. Also in January, Meath Sinn Féin councillor Joe Riley revealed he was terminally ill and battling a rare type of cancer. He subsequently passed away in June. He spoke to LMFM's late lunch in January about his diagnosis. I suppose it happened very quickly, but at the same time, the type of person I am, I think, or I would like to think, I'm a very logical thinker. Uh, and I was, you know, the, what they weren't telling me, you know, we want you to stay overnight, we want to do this, this type of thing, was bringing me in a direction that this was not very clear cut. We can't operate on you. So if they can't operate on you, the ecologist then, I sat with her 20 minutes after that news. I asked her for it up front. I didn't want to be no BS uh, because I can't, I could only handle truth. I can't, I, you know, and that. So you bring yourself through a process. I think I've had it I worked out in my head. Doesn't say I might in 20 minutes be called up in the corner, bawling my eyes out. But so far, uh, I, I have, it's probably focused my life and what I have left. And I, it's friends, family that I'm given the, 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 the time to and I try to remain positive I, in my own head I'm not afraid of the end I'm more concerned about how I get to the end mm. I've had 67, 68 years of a well packed life many many people don't get that don't get the opportunity so that's the way that's where I'm trying to go mm. for whatever time I have left uh, to maximise every day that I can get out of it on the sporting front, there was a major announcement for Dundalk Football Club supporters in January as American investment firm Peak Six announced it was buying the club. In February, local cyclist Gabriel Gabo Howard died suddenly following a tragic accident. 
Gay had competed in Ross Talton, commentated on LMFM and took part in a highly controversial protest at the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich. In March, more than five years after Detective Garda Adrian Donoghue was shot dead, 27-year-old Aaron Brady from Cross Midlen appeared before Dundalk District Court charged with his murder. He will stand trial in October next year. On the weather front in March, the beast from the east and Storm Emma arrived, causing chaos across the country. People were ordered to stay indoors due to a red weather alert. In April, local trainer Gordon Elliott's Tiger Roll won the Aintree Grand National, sparking huge celebrations around County Meath and in particular Summerhill. No, I'm just very lucky. I pinch myself every day. The horses I have and the owners, I'm in a very, very lucky position, so it's great. And Tiger has been a tremendous servant and with multiple wins under his belt at this rate. What are your plans for him now? I hear the rest of the season off. It's a bit stiff in source. The rest of the season off and he can enjoy himself as we do. Michel Barnier, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, visited Dundalk in April, where he addressed the All-Ireland Civic Dialogue at DKIT. The backstop is not part of a negotiation strategy. We are not playing tactics with Ireland's vital interest. Never. There was international condemnation after 53-year-old Liverpool fan Sean Cox from Dunboyne was left with life-changing injuries after he was assaulted by Roma fans outside Anfield ahead of a Champions League semi-final. Two Italian men charged in connection with the incident have subsequently been jailed. On May 26th, as the counting of votes got underway in the referendum on repeal of the Eighth Amendment, horrific news was emerging from Dunlear. The body of 18-year-old Cameron Riley was discovered in a field by a man out walking his dog. A post-mortem found he'd been strangled. In July, 18-year-old Aaron Connolly of Willistown Drumcar was charged with his murder. In July, just two weeks before hundreds of thousands of people descended on Drogheda for the Fla, the Boyne boardwalk suffered €100,000 worth of damage due to an arson attack. The flat itself was a huge success and on opening night we were joined here on LMFM by a very special guest, President Michael D. Higgins. It's a wonderful, wonderful start to the 67th flat. I so wish Drogheda and all of the people who come here, well, they don't need my wishes because they're already having a wonderful time. It's good to have a great span of the time and the time and the it's just wonderful the amount of voluntary work that has been put in. And really, Nicole Thorey, Scott, you have superb musicians in a wonderful atmosphere, and it's great that Oriel can celebrate this marvellous, marvellous flag holder here in Gorvila Sahaptia, and I wish you well. In August, Gardaí launched an appeal for information on missing Lithuanian woman Giedra Ragukaite. She's been missing from Dundalk since May 26th. Last month, the investigation into her disappearance was upgraded to a murder inquiry. In October, LMFM ran a week-long road safety awareness campaign to coincide with the RSA's National Road Safety Week. A daily feature, Every Road Has a Cross to Bear, was broadcast on late lunch. Presenter Jerry Kelly spoke to family members at the spot where they had lost loved ones. One of those he spoke to was Judy Coffey, who lost her son Pork in a hit and run on the Dunderry Road outside Athboy in June 1996. And we put flowers here and the last march was very hard because he would have been 40 and um, I put up the balloons. And I think birthdays is always special to a mum 
you know, when they have their little birthdays, when they're small and have their little friends in and that. And that's what we do, uh, especially now that he was 40. Uh, we were saying he could be married. He could have children. And um, the all the grandchildren we have, he would have lovely nieces and nephews. And this is what he's missed. Dundalk made history when they secured the SSE Electricity League Premier Division title in October and the success continued into November when they defeated Cork City in the FAI Cup final, securing the domestic double. The celebrations had barely finished when, in a shock announcement, manager Stephen Kenny announced he was leaving the club to become Irish under-21 manager and ultimately senior team manager in 2020. Last month, the simmering gang feud in Drogheda exploded, with a kidnapping, an attempted car bombing and numerous petrol bomb attacks propelling the town to the top of the news agenda for all the wrong reasons. Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan appeared on the Michael Reid show to address the concerns of the local community. What we have uh, put in place are very, very detailed and active patrols. And they are calling in in into the estates. They're there, uh, heavily armed. And even over over this weekend, we, when we had our patrols out, we gleaned significant intelligence by stopping people who are coming into the area. And a number of these are from Dublin as well. So we are taking proactive action as regards people making complaints about threats. On the sporting front last month, Kilmesson were crowned All-Ireland Junior Camogie champions. December began with more local sporting success on the national stage when Dundalk Young Ireland's were crowned Leinster Junior Football Champions. There was more good news for Louth GAA when councillors voted to sell 10 acres of land to the county board for a new stadium. On a sad note, a cloud hung over LMFM this past week as we mourned the passing of our former colleague Dermot Finglas. Dermot presented our country and Irish show from 1989 until his retirement in 2016 and had established himself as one of the true legends of the Irish country music scene. Finally, on behalf of everyone in LMFM's newsroom, I'd like to wish you all a very happy Christmas and a peaceful and prosperous 2019. And that was our head of news, Michael Carlin, with his look back at the headlines that made local and national news so many times over 2018. And a big thank you, as always, from us to all the news team here at LMFM for the great job that they do. And a happy Christmas to one and all. We'll be back after this. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're welcome back. We will, of course, have more news headlines and the weather at 11. And joining me in studio for the final time this year, Marie Cairns, good morning to you. It's hard to believe, Carl, there's another year closing, isn't it? Another year, 2019, we're nearly at. Flew in. Anyway, we've had people in touch today, which is great. Evelyn says that uh, the government needs to realise that nurses and medical staff will continue to leave these shores unless pay and conditions improve. The government needs to get to grips with the health service. Sean phoned in. She was listening to your interview with our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, and she says he's right about the cervical smears and the way women are still being treated. There's a backlog now. So how can women have faith in their results? when they finally get them. It's a total disgrace. The government encouraged us to get our smear tests repeated and yet we do that but they don't have the system in place to deal with the numbers that came forward. Uh, Tommy phoned in and says it was lovely to hear Joe Riley's voice on the radio again and that he's very sadly missed. Mm. 
He sure is. He's missed here as well. Uh, James from Drogheda was in touch following the interview yesterday regarding the proposal to change the name of Our Lady of Lords Hospital. James feels it's stupid to change the name of the hospital. He said that it is attacking Christianity and it's not about attracting doctors and nurses from outside the country to the Lords. On the Roscommon eviction, Kevin finds the reaction to the eviction hard to believe. He asks how many people have been kicked out of their homes and no one has done anything. Why is there a fuss being made about this particular eviction? Asks Kevin. Probably the manner in which it transpired and the manner of events which followed. Yes, Pat from Denier on Brexit says that a lot of people in the North East are sleepwalking into Brexit. Pat said that he's of a generation that remembers the border and security checks and if a border is in, it will cause issues and he said it only takes one incident for the whole situation to get volatile. One of the papers this morning said that a hard border is now inevitable. Oh, I hope not, Cahill. I really do. That's not what we want to be looking forward to in the new year. Uh, but before that, I'm going to park the comments because, Cahill, you'll probably be a bit like me on Christmas Day. You'll have the old feet up and you'll be sitting back. I'm not working until the 27th this year. There you go. You'll be sitting in front of the telly, stuffing yourself and my having colleagues will be working the in the sun offices, however, and my heart will go out to them. That's it, because not everybody gets to relax on Christmas Day. And I spoke to three local people who'll be in at work looking after others. First, I spoke to Austin Byrne. Austin, tell me about your Christmas Day. It's not going to be like mine. No, some of us have to work. Uh, the ambulance service work 24-7 all year long. Um, my children will be having Christmas dinner with my brothers, who are very kind to take them up. My wife passed away a few years ago, so they'll be having Christmas dinner with my brothers. And I will be on duty from Christmas Eve until the day after St. Stephen's Day, along with all my colleagues. And what age are your children? Well, they'll always be children, Marie, but um, (laughs) my son is 22, my daughter is 19. Do they mind you not being there? Do you mind me asking you? Um, Well, they do, because it's it's not the same without your dad or your mum, and especially now that mum has passed away. But I've I've done in the recent 12 Christmases, 13 New Year's, so they've kind of got used to it now. You understand that from you come into it, that um, bank holidays, any kind of holidays, don't mean anything. If you're due on duty, that's... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That's where you are. And tell us what you do, Austin. I'm a paramedic within the National Ambulance Service. That's what I do for a living. So how will your Christmas Day start? Well, we go in. I'm on at 7 o'clock each morning over Christmas. We go in, we check our vehicle, make sure all of our, our equipment is up and in the vehicle, make sure all our drugs are in line, and then we sign ourselves onto the vehicle and wait for the first call to come in. Would it traditionally be a busy day? You never know, Marie, but mostly, yeah, we're busy. We're busy all day. The fact that everybody is eating a little bit more um, on the festive season can bring on people having breathing problems or heart attacks or anything like that. On the day itself, will you get to spend any time then with your family? Um, I'm finishing at 7 o'clock in the evening. We work 12-hour shifts. I work 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. That's to get up tough. To me. But that's life. That's what we signed into when we went into this job. It's not something that... Um, if you're not, you know, you're not going to accept the fact that you're going to be late, miss birthdays, parties and everything else, it's not a job for you because that's the way this job runs. And you're living in Tenure in County Loud, so do you have far to travel? Where are you based? I'm based in Drogheda. Um, it's a national ambulance service now. Just because you start off in Drogheda in the morning doesn't mean that your calls will be there. They can be literally anywhere now. It can start off in Drogheda. You could have a call in Dundalk then. You could have a call in Kells. You could have a call in Dublin. I have to say, I'm, I'm full of admiration for you, Austin, because you seem to kind of take it in your stride. You're not moaning or complaining. There's no point... Um, that's life with us and I'm one of the, the older ones now. I'm coming close to retirement so I'm used to it at this stage. And of course a good day for you will be if there's no major emergencies or accidents. Yeah, Marie, it'd be a fantastic job if people weren't getting sick, you know. Yes. But unfortunately somebody is going to get sick and hopefully we can be there to help them out. Well look, wishing you all the best for Christmas and thanks so much for the job you do and for joining me on the programme. Well, thank you very much, Marie, and a very happy Christmas to yourself and everybody, all your listeners. Caroline O'Brien from Drogheda, you're not going to be at home having fun on Christmas Day? No, I'll be working on postnatal ward in Our Lady of Lords Hospital. And what will you be doing? Well, I'll go in, the, I'll go in at the 10 past 7 and I'll go in and change into my uniform and uh, get the breakfast for the ladies, the tea and toast and the cereals and I'll set up all that for wherever mm. ladies. There. there could be 30 ladies or there could be five doesn't it depends okay and of course they have to be fed on christmas day oh yes because there'll be some of them that won't be able to go home like might have had a section and you can't go home after so many hours are you in all day caroline no i'll, I'll finish off at one after i give the ladies their lunch and i'll go home and i'll come back at half three okay then... so you don't just finish at one and you can put your feet up and that's it no, no, no. I go back because the ladies have to have their tea and then set up the, make sure the stuff's there for supper and stuff for them. And I have to ask you this question, Caroline. Do you mind? No, I'm used to it now. And like I've, I've no young children anymore and there's women there that have young children. So it's nice to let them have the day with their babies. I had my time at my babies. Will you have any family time then on Christmas Day or what will you do? Oh, well, I'll go home at one and my husband's a, my husband's a great um, chef. So is he? Is, and he? 
Yeah, he actually is. He's very kind. <laughs> What's his name? Alan. Fair play to you, Alan. And he will um, have the the dinner ready and my daughters that are not living with me will come for the dinner because their fiancés will go to their mums. And my eldest daughter lives with me with my grandchild, so she'll be there with the oh. baby. Lovely. So you will get a bit of family time. You'll maybe give out presents and all that then, will you? We'll do it, we'll do it at lunchtime just before we have our dinner. We'll give them out. We always give out something as well on Christmas Eve. We always have to. It's a tradition from my mother and father. And how long are you working in the hospital? 14 years. So it's, I suppose it's something that you're used to. And what will the atmosphere be like in the hospital? I suppose, is there a fest to feel? Oh yeah, they'll try and do their best. You know, everyone tries to be a little bit music and people will try and, you know, they'll be wearing antlers and all that sort of yes. thing just to keep them. Um, to bring a bit of in. Christmas cheer to all the patients that are yeah. sick. And that's just it because there is a lot of people that will be over in the general that won't get home and they're not well, you know. And yes. it's nice for them to see a smiley face and somebody that will say morning and talk to them and be there, like uh, give them a little sense of family feeling. At least a small bit. Well, look, thanks for joining us and enjoy your Christmas day. It'll certainly be busy. Austin Campbell, you're someone else who's going to be working on Christmas Day. Tell me a little bit about your job and what you'll be doing. Yeah, so I work in Drogheda Homeless Age. I work as a resettlement worker and I also work as a team leader. So on Christmas Day, I'll be working as a team leader. So basically, I will, it's a little bit of everything. People come in and out of the hostel, you let them in and out, and you kind of oversee everything that's going on. And how many so, are in the hostel? So we have 25 people living in the hostel at any one time, and it's emergency accommodation, so the people living there can change night by night, or some people would live there for a few months until we can find them more long-term accommodation. Services, um, obviously continue as normal then on Christmas Day to make sure that they are looked after the same as every other day. Yeah, we'd be even busier around Christmas. I suppose most people who live in emergency accommodation probably don't have anywhere to go at Christmas. And then even some people living in the community who mightn't have family or friends would actually come into us and we do Christmas dinner on Christmas Day so oh, we would be particularly busy. Would there be an attempt to have a festive atmosphere as much as possible? Yeah well I think it's like with Christmas Day it's probably the same with most people who are working on the Christmas Day even though it's the same job it's like a very different it's a very different day and people are I think yeah there's, there's there's a different spirit. People are different. We obviously put on really nice food. There might be a bit of music. It'll be, I think, when you're working with people who maybe don't have somewhere else to go, you're more conscious of it and everybody makes a little bit more of an effort. So it's something that, for me, it's a nice thing to do. It's like something I actually enjoy. I'm not doing it because I have to. I actually enjoy it. I suppose there's probably a feeling on that particular day, it being Christmas Day, that you are giving something back, if you like, to those who aren't as fortunate. I think there's that and there's it's probably even like a little bit of a selfish thing. For me, working on Christmas Day, I feel incredibly grateful for everything I have and I feel very lucky. And I suppose there is a little bit of it's nice to give something back. But as well, it reminds me of how incredibly lucky I am 
And I was lucky as well when I was a kid. My mum used to, she worked in the Lourdes Hospital as a nurse. Okay. And some Christmases, she'd be working on Christmas Day and we'd go in to, I think there was a carol service or something we used to go into. And I remember as a spoiled little kid and all you're worried about is what you want to get from Santa. Of course. And then you go in and you get to see the people in the hospital. So maybe it's from, maybe it's from hanging out with my mum on Christmas Day in the Lourdes. And that was Marie there talking to some people who will be working over the Christmas. And what lovely people. I know, aren't they incredible? And they're just so giving of themselves. I mean, we heard the two Austins and, and you know, and, and Our Lady of Lords Hospital. There are, so, there are so many great people across the North East who are going to work on Christmas Day to make your life better and my life better and so many other lives better. That's right. And as I said, I think it was to Austin at the top of the piece, they, they're not a bit, uh, you know, they don't complain about no. it. And as Austin said at the end, Austin Campbell said at the end, you know, he actually enjoys that he gets something back from it. Well, listen, great piece. Our thanks to everybody who's going to work for the community on Christmas Day. We will be back after this. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. As always this morning, the headlines dominated so much by Brexit. 98 days away we are from Britain's exit from the European Union. And just to give you a flavour of some of the headlines, no deal departure, now the default option, says Cliff Taylor in the Irish Times. Kevin Doyle in the Irish Independent, we either have a secret plan up our sleeves or our heads in the sand. And also in the Irish Times, Varadkar rules out plans for hard border. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Minister Helen McEntee, Minister for European Affairs. Good morning, Minister. Good morning, Carl. Are our heads in the sand? Well, I don't think so. Um, And I think the document that we published this week um, very clearly shows that a huge amount of work has been going on, not just over the past few months, but indeed the past two years. Um, We published, for those who don't know, a document essentially looking at uh, the possibility of a no deal um, and what that would mean and what kind of contingency plans we would need to put in place. It's a live document, it's it's a rolling document, it's a working document and one that would change and develop, I suppose, over time, depending on what actually happens. What we know is that we have a withdrawal agreement. We have an agreement which would mean that if the UK leaves on the 29th of March next year, if they ratify this agreement, that they will leave in an orderly fashion, that we will be able to then go into a transition period of almost two years that would then give us the time and space to negotiate a future relationship. If that is not agreed, however, and of course we have seen how politics have changed in the UK, we've seen the disruption that is going on over there, uh, and we have yet to have an agreement, we have yet to have a vote on this withdrawal agreement. And so for us, the priority now is to increase our focus on a no-deal scenario, increase our preparation work and make sure that if that happens, and obviously we don't want it to happen, but if it is a case that there is a no-deal, that we are as prepared as possible. The idea that we would have any kind of a return to a border, and I know that's what you're suggesting or what Kevin is suggesting in the, the headlines today, Brexit is not an Irish policy. Brexit is the thing that threatens any kind of a return to a border on this island. And so for us, if we are in a no-deal scenario, we need to make sure that the UK are working with us, are working with the EU, are working with the Commission to do everything that we can to avoid it. But for us, obviously, the best way to do that is to have an agreement for the Prime Minister and the House of Commons to pass this uh, withdrawal agreement on the 14th or the week of the 14th of January, and then obviously to start focusing on a future relationship. Whatever about a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of things to happen and a lot of work still to do. But what, whatever but about a, an old deal, Minister, we're, we're in a no-win situation here, are we not? Well, I think the document itself, and, and obviously it's perhaps maybe not light reading over Christmas, but it is actually... Star, stark and sobering, your, your it, colleague it, Simon Coveney called it. It is. It, 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 it's, it's quite a, a stark read in that 
no matter what happens, if we have a no-deal scenario or even if we have a deal, we are not going to win. We are going to be worse off. And certainly in a no-deal scenario, what we're talking about is crisis management. We're talking about damage limitation. Um, it's not a good outcome. Uh, the UK would become a third country. It would mean that they would no longer be part of the institutions, the various different agencies, the bodies, the programmes. They would be outside what's called the, the legal key, so any of the legal instruments, and there would be no transition period. So I've met with many business, many individuals and people in County Mead, and we've talked about the transition period that they would require to know what kind of changes were coming down the line, and there just, would be no transition period. Yeah, just look back, Minister, yesterday's, um, you, you, as you said, you, you, the government here has published its own contingency plans, the EU has published contingency plans, but a lot of the headlines that arose out of that were the likes of, you know, a medical supplies will run short if UK becomes a third country. There are many, many issues for the agri-sector, including livestock having to be checked on the borders. Is it not impossible to avoid a hard border if Britain crashes out of the euro? The only way, and well, one of the ways that we think that you can avoid a hard border, and obviously this is why we've spent 18 months working on the backstop, it's not an easy thing to do, but where you have convergence in regulations, where you have a similar customs scenario or customs um, area, then you are able to avoid a hard border. So so long as as Britain plays along. Well, what we know is that Britain, uh, that the UK government, in the same way as the Irish government, the parties of the North and the EU have signed up to the Good Friday Agreement. It's an international peace treaty and they have given that commitment to make sure that they would protect the peace process and what's intrinsically linked to the peace process is a no border. We know that the, the minute Ireland and the UK joined the European Union, when we became part of the same single market, the same customs union, those borders disappeared and obviously that's what we want to ensure continues but, into the future but the onus is very much on the UK to come forward it would be a very very difficult um, conversation that has to be had if the UK crash out without a deal because is, we know that it, we've spent 18 months working on the solution to actually avoid it, a border. Is it foolhardy Minister then of, of your, your Taoiseach Leo Varadkar to say that he is ruling out all planning for a hard border? We're not planning, and, and again, this document, it's 136 pages, as you said. It goes into everything from uh, our airlines and how our, our land bridge would continue to work with the UK. It looks at medicines, agriculture, fisheries. It does not focus on any kind of a border because we are not planning for the reintroduction of a border. And if it gets to the stage, as I've said, there is obviously a sequencing of events now. We have a vote that still has to take place. If the UK don't ratify this agreement, there's then a series of possible uh, directions that this could go. There was an amendment put down by Hilary Benn in the House of Commons a number of weeks ago, which was passed and which would enable essentially members of the Houses to put forward their own proposals and the top five or six would be selected by their own chair or their Cahirlock. And that could be anything from uh, extending the Article 50 process, which would mean that they wouldn't leave on the 29th of March. It could be anything from a proposal to a second referendum. It could be a proposal for an election. Obviously, we don't want any of these to happen. We want them to pass this. But in that instance, we need to make sure that the UK uh, uphold the commitments that they've already given, and that is to avoid a hard border. Uh, And they have given that commitment that they would avoid that in any circumstances. It obviously becomes much more difficult if you don't have an agreement. It becomes much more difficult if the UK then decide that they are going to change uh, or impose tariffs or non-tariff barriers. And as you've mentioned, one of the biggest challenges for us in a no-deal scenario for our economy, not just north-south, but also east-west would be the imposition of the WTO rules. We don't know what kind of tariffs could be imposed. We don't know what kind of 
uh, divergence in regulation. We don't know how the impact on sterling would impact on our own economy. And then, of course, the economy of the UK, if that were to crash, if that were to head in a, in a difficult direction, it obviously has a knock-on impact well, on us. So all of this work, it, 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 it's quite stark. It's not the outcome that we want. But all of this preparation, the document that we've published this week, attempts to try and deal with a lot of that. Mm. And I would encourage anybody, if, if I could just say this, there are a lot more events happening in the new year, whether it's from Revenue, Enterprise Ireland or our own Brexit roadshows. There are dates in this document for events that are taking place for people to engage, to look at their own business, to see how they might be impacted and obviously to try and plan. And I'm sure, and I'm sure Minister, this is going to dominate so much of your Christmas holiday. Finally, can I just thank you for coming on, on air with us today, Minister, because I know today is a very difficult day for yourself and your mum, Kathleen, and the family and the anniversary of your dad's death. It is. Well, thank you. It was his birthday on Wednesday and his anniversary today, so we're, we're missing him and we're, of course, thinking of him today. Absolutely. So thank you. And we, we, we pass, as always, our condolences on to you. And, and I know it's not a, not an easy time for the family, so we thank you for your time today. Not at all. And if I could wish everyone a happy Christmas and, and a peaceful Christmas and the same to you and all the, the team at LMFM. And absolutely the same to you, Minister. Thank you for your time. That was Minister Helen McEntee there. We're going to go now and have a look. At, we always do at this time on a Friday for a review of the contributions made in Leinster House this week by TDs and Senators from County Loud and me. The report is brought to you by the House of the Oireachtas with our parliamentary correspondent, Ken Murray. Hello again and welcome to this week's edition of the Loud Me, the Oireachtas Report. We begin our roundup this week with a contribution made in the Dáil on Tuesday. A call was made for more gather resources to be made available in Drogheda, arising from an ongoing feud over the supply and sale of drugs in the town. Finnegale TD Fergus O'Dowd raised the matter with Justice Minister Charlie Flanagan. There's an absolute need for additional permanent guardie to be based in the town of Drogheda to fight this crime and also to do the regular and, and important policing for uh, role that they cannot necessarily do at the moment because they don't have the, have the resources that they need. But again, as I say, the fact that when you go into Moneymore, a state where some of these criminal activities have been carried out, there is in that estate a CCTV system which is dysfunctional is not working. I understand it's the duty of the County Council to deal with that. They are in discussions with the Gardaí, but nothing that I'm aware has happened as I speak to you. That that system is not working tonight, where if it were, it could prevent crime and could monitor and give to the people of that estate the security and knowledge that, that anybody who breaks the law in there in the way like petrol bombing or whatever will be and will be apprehended, will be seen. Minister. As I've said in responding to incidents averted by the Deputy, the Gardaí have put in place a policing operation to, to prevent and detect and mitigate against any further escalation um, of violence, uh, and that will continue. Um, I want to take this opportunity, Laskian Corla, to reiterate uh, to both Deputy O'Dowd and Deputy Brannock and, and anyone in the Louth area that if anybody has any information in relation to incidents in Drogheda, uh, that they would please contact their local nearest Garda station or through the Garda confidential line at 1800-666-111 as soon as possible. Ongoing delays in providing illness benefit payments to vulnerable constituents was raised by Fianna Fáil TD for me, the East, Thomas Byrne. He raised the matter in the Dáil on Wednesday. On one day in recent months, my office handled 17 separate complaints, including one individual from an estate within walking distance of the Minister's office who wasn't able to get any satisfaction from the Minister's office. Another case that the Minister describes as a party was a lady with breast cancer who came to me initially through a pharmacist who couldn't get a medical card. And she said, by the way, the reason I can't afford my medicine 
is because the illness benefit hasn't been paid, and we took that on as a separate issue. And if a bank were to do this uh, to these constituents, to deprive them through negligence of money, uh, not only would the money be paid, there would be interest and compensation paid. And I think the Department of Social Protection needs to look at itself extremely carefully. I think the Minister described this as a party. I think it's just absolutely devastating for the constituents. In response, Social Protection Minister and Finnegalty Day for Me East Regina Doherty apologised and accepted that her department had messed up. When we changed over in August, we upset a system with the premise, in fairness, of trying to make a system more efficient uh, on behalf of the recipients who receive 50,000-plus recipients who receive illness benefit, who are absolutely entitled to it, who get it because they pay into a social insurance fund. They get it every single week. When we tried to bring efficiency, uh, efficiency to the system, we cocked up. We made an entire balls of it, and we messed up. Now, we have apologised profusely, and I'll do it again, for all of those people for far too many weeks and many months um, that were ill effect. Uh, affected by the changes in the department. I sincerely apologise. A call was made in the Senate on Wednesday for the return of Drogheda Borough Council. Labour Senator Jed Nash accepted that his party was in power in 2013 when the original decision to abolish it was made, but said in hindsight it was wrong. In one stroke of a pen, uh, we lost several hundred years of history. And the same could be said for Kilkenny Borough Council, for Wexford, for Sligo and for Clonmel as well, and indeed other substantial towns across the country. Well, other towns that have got town government in 1899 under um, the, um, that, that particular act, um, Drada and Kilkenny had it for several hundred years. And uh, in an effort to, and we acknowledge that we were in government at the time, and we should not have allowed that to happen. As my colleague Brandon Howland said famously, he was too busy saving the country to keep an eye on, um, on the minister who took the decision at the time. Damage was done. It needs to be addressed. We have a bill in front of the doll, as you know, Minister, to restore town and borough councils over a certain level and restore those functions. We're determined to push that um, legislation and to make sure it's not to the statute books to give towns like Drogheda back the status that it and other towns deserve. The plight of those who have to sleep rough over Christmas was raised in the Dáil on Tuesday by Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster. Minister of State Owen Murphy replied on behalf of the Taoiseach. Do you ever take a walk around the city here and see people living in tents outside our Garden of Remembrance or sleeping in tents outside shopping centres or just round the corner, in fact, in Nassau Street where you have to practically step over human beings huddled in sleeping bags. Please, when you get up, don't get up and give your usual spiel or don't have your minister regurgitate his inaccurate figures again. We're talking about human beings, about families and about children. So will will the Taoiseach and the government accept that the Rebuilding Ireland policy has been an utter, absolute, dismal failure? Brief response. Uh, thank you, Lasca Corlin, and thank you, Deputy, for the question. Uh, yes, I have been out with, with outreach teams, and I have been to family hubs. And I know that Christmas can be a very special time for many people, but obviously for, for others it can be incredibly difficult. And those most vulnerable uh, at the moment in this Christmas will be families who are homeless and in hotels or family hubs, or people who are sleeping rough on our streets. But that is why we have made the commitment under Rebuilding Ireland. Next year, we'll spend more money in a single year on housing than any previous government ever has to deliver 10,000 okay. new social housing homes into the stock of social housing to help people who are most vulnerable. That's what rebuilding Thanks, Ireland is about. Sure. And that concludes our Loud Me The Rock this summary, not only for this week, this month, but indeed for this year. So until next time, this is Ken Murray for the Houses of the Oireachtas Weekly Report.
Thank you to Ken and as you heard him say there that was the last Eroctus report for the year. Ken Murray will have more Loud Me Eroctus reports in the new year. The reports are brought to you by the Houses of the Eroctus. Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're welcome back to the Michael Reed Show. Before we came on air, I caught up with my Irish son colleague Gordon Manning, a good Kells man, as we looked back at the GA year in the North East. And I began by saying to Gordon that it would be only fitting to start in Park Talton last Sunday and the fundraiser for Sean Cox. Yeah, it was uh, it was actually a lovely occasion, Carl, in, in a lot of ways, and so far as the old rivalry between the, the two neighbours, Dublin and Mead, coming together for you know for a, a special cause. And great credit has to go to the St Peter's and Boyne GA Club and the way they've carried themselves with great dignity uh, and really uh, got got behind Sean Cox and his family over the last number of months and what has been a really difficult period. Uh, and I think anybody that was in Park Hodgson last Sunday w- would have agreed that it was a, it was a fitting occasion. The tragic story, of course, Sean went to a match at Anfield and, and his life has changed forever. And as a Liverpool fan, I'm sure you must have great sympathy for him. Absolutely. I mean, how many of us have gone over across the water to watch games and, I mean, to just be so unfortunate to be in the wrong place at the wrong time um, and it's beyond uh, kind of comprehension what it does to a family um, and you can only hope that uh, that with the help of such fundraising and with the, their, their, f- f- their friends behind them and their, the GA community and the wider Mead and Loud and Irish community behind the whole family that it can maybe help Sean uh, get back to some form of normality and I know uh, they've many months uh, and probably years of, uh, of hard work and rehabilitation ahead of them uh, but I think everybody wishes him the best. And it shows, doesn't it, the way St Peter's Dunboyne, as you said, have responded, the way the GA community has responded, just how much Gaelic games and hurling and, and football, it is a family. Absolutely. And, you know, um, it's in some ways, you know, if you were to go back 20, 30 years ago, you know, uh, and see a guy over a, a soccer match in Liverpool um, and for a GA community then to rally behind him the way it has and for it to be so uh, well received uh, is a great testament to how far we've come as a country as well, thankfully. But, uh, you know, to see Dublin and Mead players walk out together to, uh, you know, rocking around the Christmas tree in, in December, uh, those kind of things, you know, you don't, if you live long enough, you'll see everything. But, uh, you know, for Dublin and Mead to come together and in fairness to Jim Gavin to, for, you know, sending a team down and coming to play in, in Navin, it showed that, you know, there's more to life than Gaelic football. Now, in terms of the football, Meath won that much, but it wasn't a great year for Meath or for Louth. No, um, for the North East, it was a season really to forget in, in a lot of ways. Um, I suppose for Meath, you know, really, Meath's purgatory has been Division 2 football for too long now. Uh, and for Meath football to kick on, I think they need to be playing Division 1. Uh, and Andy McIntyre, I'm sure, will have that as a priority for, for next year. But if you look at Meath's season, really... It kind of fell apart in, in, in February this year. Um, it, they drew at Roscommon in their opening league game and then beat Clare. So it wasn't too bad of a start. But then in February, they lost to Cavan in Breffney Park and then went down, to, uh, went down to Tipperary and lost to Tipperary. And those successive defeats really seemed to derail the season. Uh, a defeat to Cork followed. But at that stage, their chances of getting to Division 1 had gone. But those two defeats in, in February just seemed to really have an impact on the squad. A squad which... 
in a lot of ways just seemed to lack a little bit of confidence uh, and as the season went on I think uh, Mead seemed to lack uh, some on-field leaders as well so looking to 2019 I'm sure Andy McIntyre will, will try to be and you can't just grow leaders you know they have to kind of uh, come within themselves within the squad uh, but I think Mead really need to find some leaders uh, looking ahead to 2019. This was the summer of the Super 8s, but for me, it was the summer of two games in the Championship. Longford in the quarterfinals in Leinster, beaten, and then Tyrone in Navan on a, on a Saturday night in June. Their season ended on June the 9th. Yeah, and maybe, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sad reflection in some ways that it wasn't a shock that Mead lost to Longford. It might have been a surprise, but it certainly wasn't a shock. Um, it would have been a shock had they held on against Tyrone. Absolutely, and, you know, I think maybe that's why, you know, Andy has you know, really thrown his lot in again for, for next year because I think he saw something that thrown game that there was a bit of fight and character within this group uh, that maybe we haven't seen enough of. And I think really really what we haven't seen enough of is consistency in back-to-back performances. They can tend to produce some really good football and really good uh, periods of play, but they just consistency to go from one good game to a bad game to another good game. And finding that consistency has been a big problem for Mead. And yet, when we look at Loud in the Championship, they got as far as the 23rd of June before they were beaten by Leitrim. But they did have a win against London, uh, a defeat against Carlo. Pete McGrath didn't hang around. Well, I think uh, after they lost to Carlo in the Championship, Carl, I think uh, Pete said it has been a calamitous season. Uh, and I think that summed it all up. And even after that, I think he kind of more or less suggested that it mightn't have been his greatest decision to come and manage Loud. And it just didn't work out. Uh, Loud lost all seven games in the league, got relegated, uh, lost to Carlo, got a win over London against the head and probably against uh, against the odds. But then you know it got, got knocked out the next time out against Leitrim. So it was a really disappointing season for Loud football. Um, they're looking at Division Three next year under new management. Uh, so they'll be hoping to maybe you know, make some inroads there, making some uh, get some early momentum. And, and Wayne Cairns is the man who got a, mi- a loud minor team to a Leinster final not so long ago. Yeah, like uh, by all accounts, you talk to anybody in Loud, he's uh, very highly regarded within the county. Um, as you said, he managed Loud to the uh, Leinster minor final in 2017, the first uh, minor final appearance uh, since 1971. They beat. Uh, Lee Shoffley and Wexford along the way so he, he has credentials at underage level he, he managed them at under 21 as well uh, I think he, he got Neil Funbar to a 2005 Lou, uh, 2015 uh, Loud Junior title so he you know he has done the groundwork he's earned his shot at this um, I suppose the concern would be does he have the players there to really take Loud to the next level uh, Kieran Byrne of course has come back from uh, from Carlton after his stint with AFL but he's recovering from an ankle break at the moment uh, if he does go back in and gets back in the squad he will certainly add to it you would hope um, but for Loud just do they have the do they have the strength and depth and numbers to really be competitive to get back up to Division Two level and be challenging for Division One? Because I think looking looking at the season ahead, I think they'll be doing well maybe to consolidate their position in Division Three. We can't say goodbye to 2018 without saying goodbye to Paddy Clark, a man well known in Mead football circles, but a legend in Louth. An absolute gentleman. Um, I suppose for uh, for anybody who kind of works in in our game, uh, they would have come across Paddy in different uh, different stages of his his managing career, or his stats career, or coaching career, and uh, never uh, he would never meet you without having a smile. Um, he certainly helped me out a lot when I was starting out. He would always take a call, and uh, I had at the utmost of time from, and it was very saddened to hear of his passing. Uh, a great a great GA mind. A great 
great mind, but overall, a really uh, lovely man, and uh, I was very sad to hear it was passing. Finally, Gordon, to look to the future, there's a, a ground redevelopment on the way in Parchalton. I'm sure after everything that's happened in Cork, they'll be keeping a close eye on that. And a very contentious decision to base Louth football in Dundalk going forward and take the county ground out of Drogheda. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's plenty of people in Loud that will say, I'll believe it when I see it, because uh, this has been an ongoing saga now for too long for Loud football. Um, they have not been able to nail down a home of their own. They need to put down roots somewhere. Uh, I don't think there will be agreement from everybody, no matter where that is, but Loud football does need a home uh, certainly suitable for inter-county football. So the fact that they've bought a site at last in Dundalk is progress, even if it doesn't appease everybody? I think it has to be. I mean, I think it's just gone on too long for Loud. And, you know, the inter-county team has suffered as a result because they've had to play some pretty significant uh, qualifier games outside uh, of Loud. Uh, and if you'd had them back in Loud, uh, you know, with a home crowd, you just might have got some different results and some better results. And I think Loud football do- does need a home. As regards for Park Talch, you know, what's going to happen in Mead? You know, that old saying about if, if you build it, they will come. Uh, I think Mead uh, should be focused on building a football team and getting the underage structures correct before they really uh, pour everything into a stadium. But the stadium plans are going ahead. It looks like it's going to be a fantastic stadium. But I think Mead need a football team to follow before uh, they have a, a stadium uh, that maybe to, to fill. And my thanks there to Gordon Manning from the Irish Sun for his review of the year GA-wise for Loud and Mead. And a big hello to all Larry and all the family down in Kells. We'll be back after this. Michael Reed on LMFM. And you're very welcome back to the show. It won't be long now till the man in the red suit packs the sleigh and starts to head off from the North Pole. And with Christmas on our doorstep, our own Ross Lee, he completed his Christmas over the festive period. And if religion will be a part of their Christmas celebrations. Well, religion is always a, a part of Christmas for uh, most families, but uh, it's about families. You know, my husband, uh, well, he passed. He'll be 10 years uh, gone next year. And I have my two daughters and my two grandchildren, and that's my Christmas. Religious? No, no, not at all. I've given up on religion a long time ago. Uh, I live beside a church. I still don't even go. Um, it's all just family, family. Around to family, around to aunties for Christmas, another auntie for Stevens's Day. All family, no religion. Um, yeah, no, religion is a big part of it. Uh, we go to Mass Christmas Eve, and then we just stay with the family for the day that's it that's all it's about really once the kids are happy we are happy uh, yes uh, we, we have at the mass with the with the children mm-hmm. and the children will be reading there and we'll be celebrating then the supper in the evening time and of course yeah I like to uh, I like to get religion into it I think it's gone too commercial completely but uh, so we'll get uh, we'll get mass either Christmas Eve or Christmas morning not sure which but I'll bring all the children to mass so that's very important to me. It will, yes. We go to church Christmas morning. We celebrate and um, join together with the rest of the congregation. We have a cup of coffee afterwards and um, home and have dinner. And that's that's our Christmas day. And my biggest surprise this year was that my grandson has arrived yesterday evening and I wasn't expecting him. So I'm going to have company for Christmas. Um, sometimes, like we go to church Christmas morning and. Then have the dinner with the family and stuff. No. Well, the way they're going on, like what they've done in the past, I wouldn't be having anything to do with it. No. 
Religion wise, no, I wouldn't go with the mass. It's a family time. It's not really religion. It's all about family, friends, keeping loved ones close, and all that. Not religion, in my opinion. Um, well, I don't celebrate Christmas um, for religious reasons, but because we're off work, we'll just be spending time with our family, enjoying the holiday time, have a few um, laughs, and play a few games, and have nice food. Um, it is. It's a nice time to spend with family. Uh, we are Christians, but we don't celebrate Christmas. Oh, very much so. It always has been. I've been all to buy in St Peter's since 1955 and I'm currently singing with St Peter's Penae Vice Choir in the church choir in St Peter's itself. So we'll be singing at midnight mass and Christmas morning. So it's a, it's a wonderful occasion, I think. He's, and plugging for the, for the, he's plugging for the choir to get the people to go. That's not the question. The question is, are you religion? I think there's a lot of people who will tell you they've lost a religion, but religion is something that you never really lose. I think that when you have it, it stays with you, irrespective of what you do. You criticise it, you give out about it, you don't go to Mass, you don't go to confession. But at the back of it all, when someone's at me, the first thing you say, oh, God, help me. So the God is always there. Whether you like it or you don't like it, he's there. Oh, religion, yeah, definitely. I would have good faith. Um, I just I have been put off about what has happened in the past with the Catholic Church and that, but I still still would have good faith I uh, hope to spend it with um, our two sons uh, and their wives and children um, we have to rotate it every year so not to annoy anybody well not really for myself now my nana herself would be a bit religious but not myself I'd just like to spend it with the family have the family over at Christmas nice Christmas dinner it's nice to see everyone catch up with everyone because you might not see them because everyone will be working and busy the whole time so it's a nice time to catch up with family for myself and just get to know what's happening with them um, yeah well we will go to Mass on Christmas morning, um, so it will play a part, you know, and we do try and teach the kids about the, the real meaning of Christmas as well. Uh, religion probably doesn't play as big a part as it did a couple of years ago, like sort of mother just let, let me go a little bit, so she lets me do my own thing at Christmas. Yeah. But main thing is spending with the family, getting to see the family. You might see them for a couple of months and then getting to see them at Christmas, especially people coming home from abroad, Yeah, especially since that's the big thing. Uh, well, I'll be with family all over Christmas. Um, not as much, no. I'll be totally honest. I have an eight-year-old, but uh, the, the, it's it's logistics. It's just timings. The you know the Christmas Eve mass is far too late for him to go. Try getting him away from his ties Christmas morning, not a chance. So um, no, I can't imagine. So over the new year, I will take him to mass, but not for the Christmas. No. Yeah, it would. It would be um, well Christmas morning. I'll go to mass don't go all the time but it, it is a special time you know um, well for me from where I come from um, religion would be a major part of it I'm from the Caribbean so it's a big thing for for Christmas it's about the birth of Jesus Christ it's about family it's about having fun you know it's about reflecting of of the year um, it, it's a time for kids because they're all excited about what Santa will bring for them and put under the Christmas tree. Yeah, I do, I mean I do like the true, mean, the true meaning of it. of course I do, but I think it kind of it can get kind of lost. Mm. I might go and visit the crib mm. I probably won't go to Mass 
Ross Leahy there with a Vox Pop on the streets of Drogheda. My thanks to Ross, to Marie, to Chris and to Maggie for all their help over the year. It is the final show of the year, Marie. It is, Carl. Can you believe it? As I said earlier. And before we wrap up, I would like to thank you, Carl, for stepping into the hot seat over My the pleasure. past couple of days My and pleasure. throughout the year. We've all, always enjoyed working with you. And also to Ross Leahy, the man himself, or Mr. Ross Leahy, as he likes to be referred to now, for helping out on research duties. <laughs> on behalf of Michael, Maggie, and Chris, I'd like to wish all our listeners a happy Christmas and a peaceful New Year. And also to thank our listeners for tuning in day after day during the year. Without you, our listener, we wouldn't be here. And we always appre- appreciate your interaction, good, bad or indifferent. It's the only time of year, as you know, that we're allowed to play a song on the Michael Reed show. And, and we always only, get very excited about it. That's why we're song. wearing the Christmas hats. Well, for me, there's only one song. And it is, of course, Fairy Tale of New York, my favourite. And we're going to play that out now today. And I'd like to dedicate this to our listeners. And we'll see you back here on January 2nd. Well, happy Christmas. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.